Morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. So I wanted to share some really fun thank you cards from the kids at Mendota for our Christmas store, right? So we had five Christmas stores at our three partner schools, Eagle Point West Side and Mendota Elementary. And these are from kids at Mendota Elementary. So you guys, the church gave over 1,200 gifts, which meant um, the hundred of you that helped distribute and make those Christmas stores go, um, you were able to distribute for us gifts to some 500 family members at our three partner schools. And they're so grateful. So here's one nice little Christmas tree here. See that? It says, thank you for the thoughtfulness. You'll notice a theme here. And you open it up and it says, thank you for the thoughtfulness. I like your thoughtfulness. I love that. And a picture of the family there and some fun stars. This one said, thank you, good friends. And then on the inside, um, I'm guessing it's a little girl. She says, thank you for the kindness. So your kind thoughtfulness has been greatly appreciated. Thanks for being part of a church that by God's good grace is um, a Christ-centered church for all people where we're desiring to see the power of the gospel change things, our own lives, transforming lives, our city, renewing our city, and changing the world. So we love partnering with the schools. And most of these schools that we're partnering with give us a, a huge opportunity to make a difference in what's called the opportunity gap. And to love on these kids and invest in those schools and places, adopting teachers and being big brothers and big sisters to do good in our own backyard. And I love being a church that cares about the nations and also cares about those in our backyard. Thanks. So are you guys ready for like a, a wild sermon? You are? Okay. It's been a wild week of trying to get a message together that takes us from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 19. So do the math. I think that's like 15 chapters. And so there's been a lot of anguish in the study this week getting ready for this. And this is a section of the book of Revelation that starts talking about the things to come. And it has a lot to do with two things. One is how God is going to make all things right and how, you know, there's a new heaven here on earth, right? And, but it also talks about to make all things new, he's got to address that which isn't right. And so it gets into the subjects of God's justice and how God responds to evil. And so there's all these scenes of judgment. So like this isn't the happy stuff we turn to going, man, I can't wait to read about justice and judgment. And yet it's here, and we want to connect it to the historical setting of those churches back in chapters 2 and 3 and for us today. And so I just think, as we always are doing, it's just good to just at the beginning here just stop and pray. And Lord, so as we dive in, we ask for your help to see you for who you are and not who we'd like you to be. And so open our eyes to see you better as we look at Jesus carefully and open our hearts to trust you, to remain faithful to you, whether it's hard or whether we want to just give in to the just winds of culture. 
so that we can point others to you as well. So encourage, strengthen us, teach us, correct us as we come to your word that we might love you and others better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at that historical setting of this book called Revelation that is filled with this really different kinds of language, this apocalyptic genre, highly symbolic. And we, we noted that there actually were seven churches. These seven churches represent all churches. That number seven is symbolic. Numbers are highly symbolic in the book of Revelation as in, in this apocalyptic literature. All churches are represented in these seven. They weren't the only seven in Asia Minor. And these seven churches had people who were persecuted for being Christ followers, some who were going to have to give up their life for that, and then there are others that were really pressured, and uh, they were tempted to give in and just kind of fit in with the, uh, the Roman culture of their day that had very little to do with Christ and his purposes. And so we remember those seven churches, so on the slide you'll see them listed. There are a couple really rock-solid churches, Smyrna and Philly, Philadelphia. But then the other five really had some work to do. They weren't in a good place. Ephesus, man, they were all about truth and doctrine and theology, but they were mean. They lost their first love of Christ, for Christ, and for each other. Pergamum was deceived. They'd lost their grip on truth. Thyatira compromised. There was all kinds of sexual immorality and sensuality. It was just like it was out in Rome. They lost their purity. Sardis was asleep at the wheel. They once were alive, but God says to them, no, actually, you're dead. You guys have lost your spiritual vitality. And Laodicea wasn't hot or cold. God said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because you're, you're useless. You've lost your purpose in this world. And it's to these seven churches that we need to connect chapters 5 through 19. Because these churches were all faced with this reality that under persecution and suffering, it would be easy to give up. And go, what's the use? It's just, God's not winning, we're not winning, why, why go on? And churches that are also going, man, they sure look like they're having a lot of fun out on the streets of that city whether it was Thyatira or Ephesus or Smyrna or Philly, wherever it was. It just looks like, that sure looks like a happy place. Like maybe I should just cast my lot with those people. And they were really tempted to give in. It's to these churches that God says, I don't want you to give up when it's hard and I don't want you to give in when there's this temptation to take another path or a shortcut, if you will. And what they needed to remain faithful to the end, standing tall for Christ, which Jesus says is that's the mark of a true believer. He who endures to the end will be saved, Jesus says. What does this enduring to the end mean? It's just keep looking and trusting and wanting to point people to Christ. And for those people, what they needed was chapters 5 through 19. They needed a clear picture of who God is, seated on the throne, of who Christ is. And they needed a clear understanding of God's justice and judgment. So that's our tack. We're going to look quickly at the first part of this clear vision and then to the clear understanding of judgment as that unfolds in chapters 6 and following. And here's what we know. On either side of the letters to the seven churches, which are recorded in chapters 2 and 3, 
you have these visions of God. In chapter 1, it's a vision of Christ. The vision there is, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Christ is this awesome, powerful, dazzling, beautiful, holy, eternal God. He's the king over all kings, and he has power and authority. He has the keys to even death and to the place of the dead, Hades. Last week, Pastor David brought us to this picture on the other side, the back side of chapter 3, and that's chapter 4. And here's the image. The first part of it is all about who's on the throne, God the Father, who's three times holy, the eternal king, who's worthy of all glory, honor, and power, the one who rules over all things, who's worshipped by all in heaven. He's at the center of heaven. And why is he worthy for all this worship and praise and honor and glory? Look at chapter 4, verse 11 on the slide. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's why. Because, for, because you created all things. You're the creator of all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. In other words, you're the creator and you're the sustainer of all things. And you have the right to have all of heaven and earth's praise and worship and honor and glory and power. What he's saying is, you're the sovereign creator and ruler of all things, including us. And that's why we worship you. And so there's this vision that starts in chapter 4 as he's carried on into the spirit. And he sees the Father on the throne. And then the camera moves from looking at God and his radiant brilliance on the throne to what's in his hand, this scroll with the seven seals, to another hand that's about to take the scroll and open them. And it's this image of Christ, chapter 5, verse 1. And so as you turn to chapter 5, this is kind of a bridge here. We're moving from God the Father to Christ. We're moving from what, what, what is today, the present, to what will be in the future. So in verse 1, we read, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the Father, a scroll with writing on both sides. That would be unusual. Usually it's just on one, on both sides. There's a lot there. And it's sealed. You can't open it. You can't unroll it. It's sealed with these seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept, John said, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he'd been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So clear vision of God. 
seated on the throne, and now of Christ. There's a surprise here. The first surprise is John's really upset that no one would open this scroll and the seven seals to tell us about the future, what God's going to do, and how he's going to end the story and make all things right. He's weeping that there's no one worthy. We're told that there's no one in all of heaven, nor on earth or under the earth. There isn't a living creature anywhere in the entire universe of God's good creation that has the right and the authority to do it, except for, he says, wait a minute, there is one. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. We go, oh, yeah, that's right. In Genesis chapter 49, one of the patriarchs, so Abram's grandson, a guy named Jacob, who's got 12 sons, who become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's giving out the blessings at the end of his life, and he says to his son Judah, he said, Judah, the scepter, that's what a king holds. The scepter's not going to depart from you. You're going to have a kingly people. And from you will be this lion, this king, who rule like a lion, this victorious king. He's going to come from Jesse's root, it says here, and that was the promise to God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He's going to be David's son. He's going to be one of Judah's descendants, one of Abraham's son, and he's going to be this lion, and he has the power and authority and position to open the seals. And so he's grateful for what the angels just told him. And he goes to look for the lion and he can't find the lion. What does he see? What does it say in the text? He sees a what? A lamb. But not just any lamb. How is the lamb described? A slain lamb. Verse 6. As if it had been slain. He's talking about Christ in his sufferings. And it's good to just catch up that Jesus is the conquering king who conquers and will make all things right through his sufferings that are fundamentally about the cross, about his death on the cross. He has the right, not because he suffered injustice. John's in exile. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been a faithful leader in the church and a preacher of the church, but he got ripped off the mainland of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's hiding out in exile on Patmos. He's, he's experienced injustice. He didn't have the right. Because there's something unique about what Jesus experienced on the cross. Yeah, it was a, it was a bogus trial. Yeah, it was a vicious, cruel murder where he went through all kinds of injustice. But there's more to it. And we get a clue when Jesus, before he was, the night before he was betrayed, he said, Father, if it's at all possible, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to drink this cup. What is this cup? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup is, a, is an image of God pouring out his holy discontent, wrath, anger, displeasure over evil. And he's going, I know I'm going to have to ingest that. I don't want to drink that cup. I don't want to bear all the injustices. Is there another way? Is there another way? But not my will, but your will be done. And so there's something unique 
about what Jesus did. And so we see that he's worthy to open the, the seals because verse 9 says, because you were slain. That's why you're worthy. You were slain. And in being slain, you didn't just suffer injustice. You suffered and bore all injustice. You took it on. You drank it all. You absorbed the holy anger of God. So think about this trial that just happened. The doctor, right? The trainer for all those young Olympians and wannabe Olympians. And so Judge Rosemary Aquilina uttered the death sentence, right? Giving him 40 to 170 years, the sexual assault case of Dr. Nassar. So she heard, she heard all the testimony. She read all the affidavits of the 168 now grown women who talked all about the horrors of the way in which this evil man assaulted them. And so she was in the courtroom when some of them testified and she felt it. And she learned about it. But at the end of the day, she said, I just did my job in upholding the law in uttering and giving this sentence. Jesus doesn't just know about it. He didn't just feel it. He actually paid for it all, absorbed it all. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He didn't just suffer injustice. He suffered for all. He took it all on. Dr. Nassar's evil, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, right, Idi Amin, Mao Zedong, every villain, every rapist, every suicide, all of it, including all that I and you and we have ever done or left undone against God. And it's because of that that he alone is worthy not just to read about God's judgments, but actually to be the judge. And what a great thing to go back to that supper, the, the very night that he said, Father, in the garden, and he said, Father, come on, is there another cup? Is there another plan? Isn't there a plan B here? I don't want, I don't want to do this. It was that same night at, at the dinner table as they're celebrating Passover where he took the cup after dinner and he said, this cup is the new covenant. So I'm going to drink what you guys deserve and I'm going to offer you what you don't deserve, eternal life with God. Clarity about who God is on the throne, who Jesus is, the one who is victorious, not because he was just this powerful God. He was a powerful God who humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death on a Roman cross. You got to get it clear, John's saying. God's saying you got to get it clear, Christian, when you want to give up or when you want to give in of who God is when it's hard, of who God is, his beauty, when you want to give in to something else that looks so shimmery and glittery and gold. There's more. They needed clarity and a clear understanding about God's justice and judgment. So now we begin in chapter 6. 
this sevenfold pattern, which we saw first in chapters 2 and 3 with the churches. And now we have these three sevenfold patterns. First, there's the, the unsealing of these seals. And then on the seventh seal, the seven trumpets. And then on the seventh trumpet, it brings about the seven bowls. These seals and trumpets and bowls are symbols for God's judgment. They're not to be read sequentially. So what happens in seal one is way before trumpet one. No, actually, there's all kinds of common ground here, and we're going in circles around this same pattern that moves from all that is wrong in this world today and what God is doing to the day when he deals with it in a final way and brings punishment to evil and all evildoers, making that right by addressing the wrong and then by rescuing God's people to a new life with God where there's no more sin, sickness, sadness, or suffering because of their faith in Christ. And so don't read those as, okay, these are all happening one after another. This is like what John's doing is these, these big loops around. We're going back in and around. How is God dealing with evil today and how will he ultimately deal with it? How is he going to bring this new heaven to earth? So chapter 6, we'll get into one of these cycles, part of it, the seals. I watch, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages. Like, that's a lot. And six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. It's just, it's just symbolic language for there's famine. There's war. There's famine. Now there's death in the fourth seal. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades, was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And then we're, there's a little surprise here. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So these are people who were martyred for their faith. And we go from these seals of judgment, right, of war, of famine, of death, to this picture of martyrs who are crying out, God, how much longer before you make things right? Before you would avenge our blood. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told, here's the answer, wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
And so the remaining trumpets and the remaining seals and then trumpets and then the bowls are answering the question of these martyrs in heaven who's saying, God, how much longer, how much longer before you make it right? We just read and we note that those who were martyrs for their faith in Christ were given, this is this gift where God gives them a robe. And it's a white robe. It's symbolic of purity, of of being forgiven. And we also read later on in chapter 7, verse 14, that what was a gift is also associated with their faith. He says that robe is white because you washed your robe. They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And we go, what in the world is he talking about? What he's talking about in symbolic figurative languages, these are the people who have been forgiven and cleansed because of their faith in Christ's death on the cross. And so they've washed their robes. They've put on, if you will, Christ's sacrificial death as they believe that he died for them and they were cleansed. A gift, but an act of faith. Who are they? Not just robed, but there's 144,000 of them, chapter 7. 144,000 that were set apart from all the tribes of Israel. So these again go back to the 12 sons of Jacob. You had 12,000 from Judah, from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, from Simeon, from Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. And you have met some people that will talk to you about the 144,000. And it sure looks like it's literal here. He's talking about real numbers here. But this kind of writing will use numbers like seven in very different ways. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. And this number here is talking about the 12 tribes. And we know it's not literal because the next verse tells us, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude. It was just counted, but now it says no one could count it. Because what's mentioned in the 144,000 is symbolic of God's people, Israel, of all of God's faithful people. And we see that it's beyond number, a great multitude that no one could count. Just like God said to Abraham, it'll be bigger than the sands of the seashore. You can't count it. It's more than the stars in the heaven. You can't count it. And it's just like God said to Abraham, and through you, when I bless your family, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. Not only he says in chapter 7, verse 9, that no one could count it, but it says the people that make up this multitude are from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's a global representation. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. So the trumpets end after the seals with the release of four angels who bring massive destruction. And what's recorded there in the text is these people who have seen God's judgment begin don't change anything. Nothing changes. As God's merciful judgment, holy judgment, 
is being uttered out and people have another reason to take warning and take heed and adjust their life to God. They don't do it. And then before the seventh trumpet sounds, there's this cry in chapter 11, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 15. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. What he's saying here is, at the end of each of these cycles, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, you have the consummation of all things. Where what once was described as the kingdom of this world, not kingdoms, but anything that wasn't part of God's kingdom is an opposed kingdom. It's the world's kingdom set up and opposed to God that that now is defeated. That has been taken over. There is one kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of Messiah. And Jesus reigns forever. So before we get to the bowl, having just kind of quickly gone through the seals, quickly gone through the trumpets, really didn't go through it, but just got to the end of it. Before we get to this unleashing of more judgment, coming back around a third time to the bowls, we have this parenthesis in chapters 12 through 14. And they talk and describe about this deep conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan, God's angels, Satan's angels, between Satan and God's people. It's this deep conflict. We see the conflict between the woman and the dragon in chapter 12. The woman is representative, very likely, of God's people, the dragon of Satan himself. Chapter 13, more of the conflict. The dragon gives authority to these two beasts that show up and are worshipped, and people identify these beasts are opposed to God. They are blasphemous. They mock God, and they invite people to follow and identify and worship them, and those people who do that have a mark on them. It's a mark on their right hand, it says, or their forehead, and it has something to do with the number 666. I don't know what that means. But what's clear about what it means is they're identified with the beasts who got authority from the dragon, and we know the dragon is the serpent of all. He's none other than Satan, the fallen angel, the enemy of God and his purposes and his people. And they're identified with him, and they worship him. And their influence is, is wide, worldwide. But that's not the only group that's identifying and has an identifying mark. In chapter 14, we read that just as many were in league with the beast, so too many were identified with God. 144,000. Not literal, right? Symbolic of all the faithful who through faith have God the Father and Christ's name written on their forehead. And twice in that section, then, there are these warnings where he breaks out of the vision and the revelation that's going to the churches. And he says in 13.10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone's to be killed by the sword, 
with the sword, they will be called. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. And again, in chapter 14, verse 12, you see it on the slide. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, look, God's going to win, but there's going to be a lot of conflict. And you should expect to be in the mix of that. There's not going to be a hiding place at some point in history where there's going to not be a third place. There, there's going to be either you're identified with the, the beasts that are opposed to God, given authority by Satan, or you're going to be identified with Christ and with God. And so there's going to be no hiding place, and the stakes are going to be high, and you may have to give up your life. And so remain faithful, he says. Remain faithful. And what does it look like to remain faithful? Patiently endure the sufferings, believing that it's not forever. It's just for now. Don't give up and don't give in. Take God at his word. So then chapter 15, we start with the bowls. And we get to 16, and we got the seventh bowl. These are bowls of judgment, bowls of God's wrath. And there's something surprising. It's just as surprising as John weeping. It's just as surprising as the lion is a lamb. It's just as surprising as people longing for justice and judgment in heaven. What's surprising here as we get through this last cycle is that God's judgment in this section elicits, promotes praise and worship of God and reveals to us something about the character of God and a true understanding of justice. So in chapter 15, verse 3, for example, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. In chapter 16, verse 5, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. Verse 7, yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's judgments are not capricious. They, they are rooted out of his holiness, out of his mercy, out of his infinite wisdom. He's doing what is right and true. He's bringing about perfect justice. And that justice elicits praise, even the overthrow of Babel and Babylon, this city, this prostitute set up in defiance against God. He tells them to rejoice. And you get to the end of the section in chapter 19, and you read it, and this repeated word is hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And if you know anything about Handel's Messiah, you go, I didn't know that. The hallelujah chorus comes out of the songs recorded in chapter 19, which were the songs of the people in heaven who were praising God that he was just and that he was concerned about evil and that he was committed to doing something about evil, even allowing his son to suffer evil to make all things right. The hallelujah chorus 
comes at the end of this long section on judgment. And we're like, I wasn't expecting that. Like, I thought that was going to come out of this long section about God's love because in our minds, it's so easy to go, God's love and his justice, I don't know how to put those things together. And we have a problem with his justice. Or do we have a problem with his justice? I think theoretically we can say we have a problem with God's justice. But I don't think we have a problem for justice when we've encountered things that aren't right and fair. Maybe our problem with justice and the justice of God is because we've lived a a kind of protected life. The people who suffered injustice, who were tortured at the stake, burned alive, who knows what, they didn't have any problem crying out, how long? Trust me, there are people in our city, who have longings for justice. What is justice? To see people for who they are, created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor, and to be treated in light of who they are, with dignity and equity, not just equality. Why is it that we have a problem with justice, God's justice? Do you, do you understand that there are people in a lot of places in the world, non-Western cultures, that are these basic cultures built on honor and respect? And you know what they choke over in Jesus' teaching? When, when you're slandered and, and when you're knocked upside the head, turn your other cheek. They're going, I don't want anything about it. They're, they're, they're upset, insulted, incensed with the mercy of God. I think we see it in kids, don't we? Did any of us have to teach our kids to say, that's not fair? Did anyone teach you that? Where'd that come from? Creating the image of God. God created us to live in a perfect place where all things are right and true and good and fair. And when we thought we knew better, we mucked it all up. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in one short chapter from Genesis 3 to 4, Abel's blood is crying out, God, Make it right. Make it right. I think we get this. If we come along as we've been called to do, not just to do justice, but to undo injustice, to break the bonds, to loosen the chains that we know that when we're doing that for someone who is living under systems and, and relationships that are unjust, that that is an expression of our love for them, that we would care to make it right. The persecuted church, the pressured church, they needed to get it right, to see it clear. Christ 
the one who conquered through suffering. This is why we need a theology of suffering. Because just as Christ conquered, we conquer. There's something that happens when we say God and his son, Jesus Christ, by the grace of the Spirit, is worth suffering for, believing in, when I'm not experiencing the better day that I was made for. That's how you conquer right now. When you're crying out, how long? Make it right. All that's happened. And we understand as we patiently endure, we're winning and pointing people to a suffering lamb that was slain, a beautiful Savior who has power over death, who's coming back, who's seated on the throne, who uses bad, evil things for good. The persecuted church, when you're in that hard place, you need to see he's on the throne because it doesn't feel like he's in control. You need to believe that, that, that God could use this for good because he used the worst for good, the cross to be the best thing that ever happened. And so I can trust that he's in control. He can use us for good. And I look at him, and I see his, his, his wounds. I see him, the suffering servant, who endured to the end when he could have taken a shortcut up to heaven and said, change of plan. I got my plan, B, Father, and I'm exacting it right now. I'm going to wipe out everything because I'm powerful enough to do this, and I'm heading back to you, and I'm bringing heaven to earth. But he endured it. And when I see that he endured it, and I have his, his spirit, I'm strengthened. I, I can do it too. God, help me do it. Help me, Christ. And man, it's really important for a person who right now the world and the siren calls and like Babylon that was said to have this golden cup and all these luxuries and all this temptation. Just come on, enjoy it. It's just so easy. Oh, that cup looks so beautiful. Look at it. Look what it's offering. Listen to what she's saying. This one who says, give up on God. I got something better for you. And it's a lot quicker to get there. And when we can't look inside of it to see what it really is, like we get a view inside the cup of Babel, of Babylon, this prostitute opposed to God, seducing the nations to follow her. It says what's actually in the cup, I can't even tell you what's in there. It's so disgusting. It's putrid. It's body waste. But we have these siren calls, and we're tempted to go, man, this looks like this is what's going to bring me happiness. This is what's beautiful. This is what's going to last. This is what's going to give me meaning and significance and purpose and security. It's so important to go, mm -mm. there's only one, the one who died and is alive. The one whose beauty is seen in his scars that reminds me of his love. And I find my riches in him, my longings in him. And so I, I don't get duped by the counterfeits that come my way. And it's happening. It's happening right here today in our lives. I don't, I don't know how much we're persecuted for the name of Christ. But I believe with all my heart, man, is there a lot of pressure to just to slip back in the ways of the world. That is the shortcut 
to heading right off the cliff. And some of us are right on the edge of the cliff. And God is saying, wake up. You've taken your eye on what is truly beautiful and lasting and will last forever and be enduring in this world and the next. It's Christ. It's Christ. We need to see him. Do you see Jesus? Am I helping you? Lord God, help me to help you to see Christ. When we see him in his beauty, we'll never take our eyes off of him. We'll never look for a moment and go, who else is up here? We'll be riveted on Christ. And may we not for a moment think that God's just just loving and he's never going to do anything like that. God's love means he cares enough about all that's destroying us. God's love is that he allowed us to be free beings. We're not robots. We're not that little chatty Kathy doll that my sisters had where you pull the string and it says, I love you, I love you. He gave us free choice to serve him or to not. In hell is the extension of our earthly choice to say, I don't want to do life with you, God. I don't need you, God. I'm going to be God of my own life. And God says, well, just so you know, your life doesn't end in this life. It continues. Your soul lives forever, and the decision you make about me today is a decision I'll let you live with the rest of your life. But until that day, I'm going to keep pursuing you with my loving grace, keep pursuing you. Oh, what a good thing to remember for a church, for a Christian that's tempted to compromise and to play the game and to twist the scriptures that God wants me happy, therefore I can do this, and all the other nonsense that we come up with to rationalize our own selfish disobedience. What a good thing, what a gracious thing that God says to us, your decisions today matter. Hello, are we there? Do we understand that? Our decisions today matter. The inclination of our heart and the trajectory of our lives, they matter. And God in his love is telling us that in chapters 5 through 19. Would we hear him when we say, blessed when he says, blessed are those who've been invited to the wedding feast. Would you know that your name's in the book? Would you know that you have an invite to the wedding feast? Would you know that your faith is fully in Christ's death on the cross? Would you heed God's warning and would you respond to his invitation? Come, come, come. Father God, help us. Lord, I feel like I'm pleading for souls. I feel like I'm calling people off the edge of a cliff. I can't save them, Lord. But I know your spirit uses your word to rescue us. Would you do a work in our hearts and lives. Would we see you for who you are? That we wouldn't give up when it's hard and we wouldn't give in 
when we're tempted. For your honor and glory, Lord, strengthen us. For your honor and glory, may this be a church that encourages each other to remain faithful to the end, even willing to suffer. In Christ's name.